point. But we turn our attention again this week to Ruth chapter 1. Uh, three weeks in the first chapter. In fact, the series is going to go uh, one chapter each week beginning next week. And so uh, this week we're in the last part of chapter 1. Uh, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. And so hear God's word this morning. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Call me no longer Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Helmut von Moltke. You guys know Helmut von Moltke? Anybody know von Moltke? I didn't know him either. 19th century Prussian field marshal who observed, no plan of operations extends with any certainty beyond the first encounter with the main enemy forces. He didn't observe that in English. It was translated. But you may be familiar with a later, more concise variation of what von Moltke observes that simply says this, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. You ever heard that before? Maybe you heard it from Mike Tyson. You know Mike Tyson, the puncher, the boxer, Iron Mike. He had a popularized version of this where he simply observed, everybody has a plan until they get hit. <laughs> Same idea. There's versions of Tyson's quote online that actually add to this, include when you get hit in the mouth, or you get hit in the face. I think all of these make the same point. <laughs> point remains. It's clear from the first chapter of Ruth uh, that Naomi was visited by life's harsh winter. It's clear that she has made direct contact and first contact with the enemy. And it's clear that she got hit by life, right in the face, in the mouth, wherever. She got hit hard. And whatever plan that Elimelech and Naomi uh, had when they left Bethlehem those many years earlier. Whatever plan that was, it's done. And in the aftermath, Naomi would now be left to reimagine a future for herself, though she's not alone. Right? She has to plan a future for herself, but she's not alone. It says in verse 19, the two of them went. The two of them went. Reminds us that both Naomi and Ruth are now bound together in whatever that future holds. But even so, in this moment, in today's text, even though the reality is that she's bound together with Ruth, Naomi can't see it. She talks as somebody who walks alone. And we hear her story here this morning. When the pair arrive in Bethlehem, we learn that the whole town was stirred. They're all stirred because they see their old friend Naomi. The language underlying this idea of, com of the community is that it's excited, that's a buzz, that everybody's getting wildly filled with joyous celebration because Naomi's here. It's a homecoming and quite a celebration here. And the women of Bethlehem are delighted to see their, their friend return to town. And so they ask the question, is this Naomi? Now, when you hear that question on the surface, uh, it can be interpreted a number of different ways. Uh, probably two uh, popular ways that it's seen is the first one is this, that it is a true question. Is this Naomi? 
You look at her and you see her come, you know there's been a passage of time, and so she looks a little bit different. If you think about our presidents of the United States, you ever seen this, where they take a picture of them when they first enter the office, and then they look at them four years, and then eight years later, and you're like, wow, they've really aged in eight years, more so than the average person. And maybe that's what's going on here. You add to that the fact that this particular season of her life has been extremely difficult, and it might have changed her appearance. That the figure cut before them holds a vague, though weathered, resemblance to their old friend. And so when they're wondering, they ask the question, is this in fact Naomi? We're not sure. Second way that we could look at this is that it's in the context of delight. The delight of an old friend who has come back. Some of you might remember the 1988 World Series. Does anybody remember the 1988 World Series? Does anybody remember 1988? Okay. 1988 World Series, right? Kirk Gibson. Now do you remember it? The Dodgers. Do you remember that? Do you remember two outs in the bottom of the ninth? Full count. Kirk Gibson at the bat. An injured Kirk Gibson. Injuries in both legs. They bring him out there. He's at the plate. There's one person on base. He hits a home run. Crowd goes crazy. Dodgers win the game. An amazing, amazing spectacle. Like the heroic, the thing you hope for in sports. Like, like that is the ultimate, like you think about analogies from sports, that's what you're hoping to see is this win at the bottom of the ninth. And it happens. And the announcer, of course, when describing the call says, unbelievable, a home run, a home run for Gibson. And he just announces exactly what we all just saw. A home run. We saw that. That's what happened. But then he goes on to say, I don't believe what I just saw. And he says it twice. And he ends it with saying, is this really happening? In a question mark, right? Because this is, this is the way you'd end the story. And the spirit of the second possibility is that same feeling. Is this Naomi? This sense of excitement and being stirred that you can't believe your eyes that your friend has come back. And seeing how Naomi responds here to the reception, what she'll say in the next few verses, it seems that the latter of these two possibilities seems to be what's going on here. Because she's going to counter what they're saying at this point. Naomi corrects their identification. She says in verse 20, Call me no longer Naomi, call me Mara. I had a student in my youth group many years ago whose name was Mara. I used to ask her, do you know your name means bitter? <laughs> she just smiled. I think she heard that one before. Grief, grief changes us. It changes us. But some of those changes occur in the immediate aftermath. Some of those span the rest of our lifetime. Some of us sitting in this room right now or watching online have a lifetime of grief that continues to roll in like waves from the ocean. At some points, the waves are frequent. Other points, the waves are large, and sometimes they're just small in the background. But grief changes us. In the immediate, we become emotionally overwhelmed. We become forgetful. We're out of sorts. We're less patient, and we become irritable. We're more anxious. On this last point here, C.S. Lewis resonated with this when he observes at the very outset of a grief observed, he'll write, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. And yet still there's more. Self-esteem and decision-making also take a hit. 
when we're in that immediate aftermath, when we're in the moment of grief. And over time, we, of course, regain our faculties. We become self-controlled once more. But then, when those new routines happen and are established, the long-term effects set in. Those changes take shape. Things like questions about who we are and our identity, how we're going to live when we think about our relationships and our priorities, what we believe when we talk about our worldview, about our faith, about spirituality. Indeed, grief changes us. And though the agony of loss, or through that agony of loss, we become someone else. And so at this point, entering Bethlehem, Naomi's met with a sound celebration of a loving community. She hears their joy. She hears their celebration, but her mind is now flooded with memories from long before. Good memories. As she walks through a town that she once walked through with her husband and her sons, and that must have stung. There must have been a real sting to that, a real pain. We know that it did because Naomi, in her own words, no longer identifies with her namesake, which means pleasant or lovely, but rather takes on this new name, bitter. With all that has occurred to this point, I don't think anybody, any one of us, as we've read through chapter 1, are surprised or shocked by Naomi's newfound identity. But we might be taken aback by her candor. That might be the part where we step back and go, what are you doing, Naomi? Why do you have to say it like that? This account doesn't give any room for random chance or by accident or letting people off the hook. But instead, we see a clear affirmation here of what we understand to be the sovereignty of God. And if God is in control, there's no mistaking in our text who Naomi believes is the source of her unhappy existence. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me, is what she says in verse 20. And here's how. Naomi left full when she left from Bethlehem with her husband and her sons. But now she comes back alone in her mind. She comes back empty. God spoke against her. We said in our text, he dealt harshly with her, which resulted in the calamity that now defines her life. In other words, if you look at the language here, God has pronounced judgment on her life, and here's the sentence that she's now living into. Over the years, I've watched as grieving spouses and families have struggled to return to worship spaces in the church after they've lost a beloved loved one, one who, was, who sat alongside them in worship for so many years. And the pain for them is too real to come back into this shared space. It's too troubling to sit in a space like this without their beloved family member there beside them. And so they stay away. And sometimes when they do, they never return. We're not usually prepared for that aspect of loss when we grieve the loss of those we love. But returning to C.S. Lewis here again and what he observes about grief, Lewis offers what looks to be an equally troubling discovery amidst the grief that we experience. Asking, where is God in the throes of grief? Here's what C.S. Lewis observes. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing God, so happy that you are tempted to feel God's claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to God with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, 
welcomed with open arms. But go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After the silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Lewis asked the question here, was it ever inhabited? It seems so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? You were expecting C.S. Lewis to say something quite different, weren't you, if you just read Mere Christianity? But this is the man who's in grief, who's really experienced the winter of life. Lewis goes on to acknowledge the same thing happened to Christ. He cites Jesus' words at his execution. Why hast thou forsaken me? But then he notes this. Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about God. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but rather, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. That's where Naomi's at. That's the predicament that she finds herself in. But then comes verse 22. Then comes verse 22. This is a classic sermon. Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. Verse 22 is here. And we hear there something different's about to happen. There's something on the horizon. Had the account ended in 21, we'd have been left with a dismal outlook on life. That'd be it. We'd live in difficult places and we'd be stuck. But here in this text, we are once more reminded that our being undone doesn't mean that God is done. And we see that clearly in verse 22. We can certainly see the evidence there as we come to this final verse of chapter 1. And we see the first thing is this. Naomi is not alone. No matter how she feels, no matter how dark the tunnel vision creates for her in her life, she is not alone. And we, of course, can feel easily alone and isolated amongst the agony of our own circumstances. But Naomi, again, is not alone. The narrator here wants us to hear that. It says, So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. And of course, the underlying language here depicts both women returning. They're both returning to Bethlehem. And if you scratch your head for a second and say, how is that possible? One is from Bethlehem, the other is not. How can they both be returning? And what we see here is that Naomi is coming home in the very real sense. But there's also a place here for that foreigner from Moab, that she's returning to home. Remember what she said earlier in chapter 1? She said, where you go, I will go. Where, you're, where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And so she's completing her own journey home as she comes into that life of what that commitment was. But Naomi's not alone. And we see that also in the second thing, in this last verse. We learn that it's the beginning of the harvest. When Elimelech, Naomi, and their sons left Bethlehem in verse 1, there was a famine in the land. But when we come to verse 22... We learn that Naomi and Ruth return to the beginning of the barley harvest, is what it says. It represents a complete reversal of their fortune. Not a 180-degree turn from their experience, 
There's still pain and loss in that story. But it's a complete reversal of where they're at when they left Bethlehem in the first place. That closes out this chapter. For Naomi, who readily will credit God with calamity, she'll say that right away. God, if you're in control, I credit you with that. You made this happen. Well, that's the case. God has also made this happen. That God has brought the harvest. Perhaps Naomi here is doubly not alone in her journey, after all. Accompanied by Ruth, but also accompanied by the one who has ordered her steps, her creator, her God. So one of my questions here for us as we go away from this text this morning is to consider, have you ever tried to change your name? Have you ever found yourself in a place like Naomi, where life became so dark and dismal that you wanted to change your name? That you couldn't live into the positive expression of life that you once enjoyed, and you now instead decided, I need to live into a different identity. I need to have a different name. One of my earliest memories from kindergarten was me trying to change my name. I remember I came home and I told my mom, I'd like to now go by the name Fred. <laughs> right? Of all the names you could choose, sorry, anybody named Fred, I'm not sure why I chose Fred. I have no idea why I chose Fred. I didn't know anybody named Fred. Maybe that's why. And the change there represented for me, I, I showed up at kindergarten, and there was another kid in the class named Jimmy. And that's as simple as it was. How could we have the same name? Someone's got to have a different name. So I would change my name to Fred. Clearly, I did not change my name to Fred. That's kind of a funny version of when we try to change our name. A very minor difficulty, so to speak. This last summer, I tried to change my name again. It wasn't going to be Fred. This last summer, I was in the midst of an experience where a lot of different things were coming together into one place for me in my life. And it was a difficult season for me. I didn't walk around announcing that in, as a spectacle here, and, and I don't even know if I should say it even now, but um, it was a difficult summer for me. My life was changing uh, quickly by the addition of our second daughter, which is a place of great joy to welcome her, and she has been a, a great joy and a great addition to our family. And so we welcomed her. But amongst the preparations for that, some of you know that I got E. coli uh, early in the summer. What some of you don't know is that they gave me the wrong antibiotic over the course of a month. <laughs> and it got progressively worse and worse and worse as it didn't battle the infection. It turned from just being a physical battle to being an emotional battle. And there were some challenges here in the workplace. Uh, we're going through a difficult season, coming off of COVID and being a whole year of broadcasting online and asking some real questions after one year being here of, do you know the people that you serve? And so all those things were coming together for me this summer. And it created a very difficult, difficult season. I started to believe that I had a different name, that I was somebody else, that maybe I was in the wrong place, Maybe I heard something wrong in that process. I don't want to be the person I am. I don't want to be where I'm at. You ever had those feelings? I don't want to be here. When you start going to that place, you start feeling and touching on the places where Naomi's at. And you begin to recognize that that's what it looks like to change your identity and your name. So painful is the experience that you're in that you have to look for help and resources. And you think you're alone in that process. 
Fortunately, in our world, we do have resources. I reached out and had a chance to meet uh, on a number of occasions over a course of time uh, with a therapist and just to talk through uh, some of those places. And it helped. It helped to know that I wasn't alone, that the things I was thinking weren't wildly crazy or out there, but they're very human-type responses. As I walk through that time and as we come to this place now, as we stand here and sit in this season of Lent, and we come to this moment, I'm reminded of a couple things from Scripture that help. The first thing is this, that death always precedes resurrection. Death always precedes resurrection. As much as we might try to insulate ourselves, life can deal us a difficult, difficult blow. Christian disciples, hoping to avoid these troubles, would do well to remember that we were never promised the absence of suffering. That was never anything that we were promised as disciples. The reality, though, is that death precedes resurrection and that God offers to us, as we see here in Ruth chapter 1, not the absence of suffering, but the very presence of God. And that's something. That's something. The second thing is this, is amidst our misery, there is always mystery. There's always mystery. We're limited in our understanding of what God is up to. We're, we're limited to that. God shares with us, reveals to us in Scripture. We feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life and Christ speaking to us by that word. But it's not always complete or answer all the questions that I might have. There's places where I still want to understand and know, and yet that struggle becomes more and more real there and the shadows grow darker and longer. But that's not the same as saying that we don't ever see God at work. That's not the same thing. Even in our own difficult episodes, there is grace amidst the graves. And that's what Naomi saw, but she couldn't see it yet. She can't see it yet. So we're, what do we do with all that? Well, the psalmist writes for us in Psalm 139, answering the question, where, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go? Can I be so far lost in my emotional turmoil and struggle? Can the events of the day be so battering to me that I can't get up? Can I be punched in the face by life so hard that I have not only no plan any longer, but no hope? The psalmist answers that differently, simply saying, there's nowhere that you can go. There's nowhere that you can go in this life, not even in death. There's nowhere that you can go that God isn't able to be present to you and is present to you there. And though there is famine in the land, even famine in your life, know this, a harvest is coming. A harvest is coming. May it be so for our lives today and each and every day of our lives. May we believe it. May we see it. May we experience the presence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.